please open your Bibles to Psalm 65. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles located in the backs of the pews and turn to page 449. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that Bible as a gift. Again, we are looking at Psalm 65 this morning. Psalm 65 to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains and girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now for ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church through this portion of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Johann Sebastian Bach said this, all music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no real music, but only a devilish hubbub. I don't know what hubbub means, but it's not good. And Bach headed all his compositions with the initials J.J. for Jesus, Huva, which means Jesus help me in Latin. And then he ended them with the initials S.D.G. for Soli Dea Gratia, which means to God alone be the glory. If you look at the title, which is that heading at the beginning of our psalm this morning, we find out that this psalm was written to the choir master by David and was intended to be sung. 
This is a song written to God. And like Bach, King David has composed a song that hits that target of the glory of God and our soul's refreshment. This is a psalm about the God who is gracious to man. It's about the God who is powerful in his acts and the God who is the source of plenty. It could have been sung in Israel at any time, but since it talks about a good harvest, it is likely that it was composed after a great harvest. And you can see that it's clearly divided into three sections, verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 8, and then verses 9 through 13. This psalm celebrates God as redeemer, creator, and provider. And the main point that I would like you to see in the text this morning is this. God should be worshiped because of his salvation and provision. May our study in these 13 verses humble us by God's grace. May it encourage us because of his might, and may it make us thankful because of his provision. David begins his psalm with, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. Praise being due to God is the central theme running through this psalm. God deserves praise. He is worthy of our praise and worship. And all throughout this psalm, David shows us why. In verses 1 through 4, it's because he is a God of grace. Praise is due to him. He is the God who hears our prayers. He's the God who invites all flesh to come to him. He's the God who forgives sin. He's the God who fellowships with his people. He's the God of all grace. And then in verses five through eight, praise is due to him because he is the God of might. He answers his people through awesome deeds. He's the God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. He is a powerful God. David writes that he is the one who established the mountains. He is the one who can still the roaring seas and the uproars of the peoples of the earth. Praise is due to him because he's the God of might and praise is due because he is the God of provision. In verses 9 through 13, we see that God visits the earth and he waters it. And as he waters it, he blesses it. And God blesses the efforts of man. We see this abundant harvest in these verses. And they're described in such a beautiful and poetic way. Praise is due to him because he is the God of grace He's the God of might and the God of provision. All right, so looking back at verse one, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. Praise is due to God in Zion. Zion was the place where God's people worshiped him in the Old Testament. Mount Zion was a hill in Jerusalem where the temple stood. And this is where the people of God would gather to praise him. 
And then in the context of our Psalms this morning, it seems like the people are gathering because God has answered their prayers. And this is probably why David writes, and to you shall vows be performed. There was a time when there was lack. There was a time when the people were in need and they called out to God and said, if you do this, I will praise your name. God, if you answer this prayer, I will proclaim your goodness to the world. I make this vow to you. Perhaps it was a vow made by farmers, a promise to bless God when the harvest was gathered. Well, God has answered. And so David gives God this name. Look at verse two. He says, oh, you who hear prayer, you're a prayer hearing God. David addresses God as the one who hears prayer. And this sets God apart from the idols of the pagan nations, false gods that cannot hear, but the true and living God can. So for us, how comforting is it to know that the God of the universe hears our prayers? That he cares enough to bend his ear toward the earth and listen to our cries. We're not left alone to deal with the overwhelming problems of this life. God hears the prayers of all who come to him. And this is why we pray to him, because he listens. There would be no point to pray to a God who cannot hear But here in Psalm 65 and all throughout the Bible, God is said to be a prayer-hearing God. John Gill, a, a Baptist pastor in the 1700s, said this. This is a proof of the omnipresence, the omniscience, and the all sufficiency of God who can hear the prayers of his peoples in all places, at the same time, know all their situations and wants and what is best for them and can and does supply all their needs. He is a prayer hearing God. It should amaze us that God hears prayer, but even more amazing is the next phrase. To you shall all flesh Come. All flesh refers to all of humanity, all the nations. And this is shocking that this comes from the pen of David because during his time, only the nation of Israel were the chosen people of God. It was only the people of Israel who were able to enter the courts of God's temple. And yet, here, there is this invitation for all flesh to come to him. Not many Israelites would have ever imagined that their God would welcome the hated Gentiles to himself. But this phrase points to a future time that we are living in where God has made a way for all flesh to come to him. This is 
biblical universalism, not that false teaching that says that all religions are the same or that everyone will go to heaven, but that there is a free offer of salvation to all who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. This phrase, to you shall all flesh come, points to the beautiful truth of the Bible that says that everyone, no matter what tribe, tongue, or nationality, is invited to come to the true God through faith in the Savior that he has provided, his Son, Jesus Christ. And then we are reminded in verse 3 why any of us are able to come to God in prayer why any of our prayers are heard by God. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of sin, we have been separated from God. Sin separates. God is holy. He is set apart. And in Isaiah 59, verse 2, Isaiah writes, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sins prevent our prayers from being heard. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Here. So, how can God be the God of verse 2, O you who hear prayer, if we struggle with sin that causes him to not hear? Well, in verse 3, David says that iniquities prevail against me. David is confessing his own sin. When he uses the word iniquity, he's referring to sin, where we pervert what is good where we take God's good gifts and twist them into something ugly and harmful. He is saying, when sins prevail against me, when I am overwhelmed with my sin, when sin gets the best of me, you atone. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. The only possible answer why God would hear our prayers is the atonement. God forgives sin. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, atonement for sin was done through the sacrifices of animals, but it only covered their sins temporarily. But now there is a new covenant And there has been a final sacrifice for sins through the death of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has atoned for our transgressions. That means that he has covered our sins. Jesus' blood covers our sins from the face of God and he removes them forever. This is only one of three times that this word atonement shows up in the Psalms. And the most striking thing here is that God is the one who atones. It's not the people who make atonement or the high priest. 
but it's God himself. In Jesus Christ, he has covered our sins. He has taken our sin upon himself and given us his righteousness. This is how we are able to approach God and come to him in prayer. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done. Our iniquities prevail against us. Our sins get the best of us. Our sins overwhelm us. But here's the good news of the gospel. God atones for our transgressions. God forgives our sins in Christ. He is truly the God of grace who is worthy of our prayers. This should humble us. This should cause us to give praise to the one who it is due. Your favorite football team has not done anything for you, especially if you're a Bears fan. And yet, a lot of us give more praise to them than we do to the one who has atoned for our sin. He hears our prayers because he has forgiven our sin. He is worthy of praise. In this verse, we have both a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon. As David brings praise to God and considers him being a prayer answering God, he is reminded of his sin, but also reminded of God's grace. This is why we have a prayer of confession and assurance of pardon in our service order. We need to be reminded like David of our sins and of God's grace. But maybe the reason why so many Christians live without joyful praise to God is that they forget that their sins no longer testify against them. If you have faith in Jesus, God has made an atonement to wash away your sin. You should always rejoice knowing that your sins no longer stand between you and the favor of God. In his grace, he hears our prayers and invites all nations to come. And not only that, in verse four, David writes, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Since salvation is by God's grace alone, it is God who is the one who chooses who comes near to him. Blessed is the one you choose. We are not chosen because of our performance or our personality. We're not saved because we're good people. Every one of us has rebelled against God. There is not one who has ever been worthy of God's sovereign election. And to think differently is to be deceived by your heart. The Bible clearly teaches that no one is good, not one. And so God's choosing here is to be seen as something amazing. All of grace. Do you know this blessedness? Because you will never know the God of the abundant blessing until you first know him as the one who has made atonement for your sin.
God chooses and brings near through the blood of his son and then satisfies his people with the blessing of his holy presence. We, sa- we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Here David is pointing out that God refreshes his people with the gift of himself. Are you dissatisfied with life? Then maybe you are seeking satisfaction in things other than God. You were made to know him. And this is why the things of this world will never satisfy. So think about who he is and what he has done. Draw near and find satisfaction in this God. All these things, prayer heard, access to God and satisfaction comes through the atoning work of Jesus. Praise is due because he is the God of grace and moving on in verses five through eight, praise is due because he is the God of might. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. Not only is God willing, but he is able to save his people. He is the God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. David is thinking of these awesome deeds that God has done in response to his people's prayers. Think about when God sent 10 plagues in order to free his people from the Egyptians. He literally turned the Nile River into blood. This was an awesome deed. Or think about when he caused the sun to stand still in order to give Joshua time to destroy the Canaanites. A God who can do these things deserves to be trusted and praised. A God who can do these things is the hope of all the earth. He is the hope of the whole world. Every Christian today who faces trouble and danger may look up to heaven and pray to the God who is able, as Paul tells us, to to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He is the God of might. David says in verse six that he is the one who established the mountains by his strength. Being girded with might. This refers to him being clothed with might. He wears strength. And he is the creator of the world. Think about the great mountain ranges all over the world, like the Himalayas. The Himalayas span 1,500 miles and cross over five different countries. And then the the highest peak, Mount Everest, is 29,000 feet high. Diane and I were driving in Schaumburg the other day, and we could see the Sears Tower from there. I know it's called the Willis Tower, but it will always be the Sears Tower to me. But the, but the Sears Tower is so tall that he could, we could see it from Schaumburg. And it's only 1,400 feet high. Mount Everest is 29,000 feet high. 
and it spans over 1,500 miles. God is the one who established these mountains. They didn't emerge one day out of nowhere. Think about how firm and immovable the mountains are. Our God is the one who rooted these mountains in their place and who can easily make them move if he wanted to. The God that we worship established the mountains. Have you thought about this? Yes, we've all stood at the base of a a mountain or a hill, and we've felt small, but have you considered the power of the one who placed that mountain there? He is able to save. He hears and can answer our prayers, and he is worthy of our praise In verse 7, David writes that God is the one who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. The seas can change from peaceful to chaotic so quickly. They seem to be uncontrollable. Think of hurricanes or great storms that happen in the Gulf. And we watch on TV as these waves get bigger and bigger and the weather reporters try to give their report having difficulty standing because of the wind and the water everywhere. But God has the power to still the storm in a second. And we see Jesus do this in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus and his disciples are out in a boat and a windstorm comes along and the waves are crashing and water is coming into the boat. And all Jesus does is says Peace, be still, and the wind and the waves obey him. He stills the raging seas and the tumults of the peoples. He can calm the raging nations. Our nation has been in total chaos for years. A pandemic, riots, shootings, deception from our leaders, The world around us is at war, but the God who can calm the sea can calm the nations. The God of the Bible has authority over all lands, all waters, and all people. And as God acts out these awesome deeds, look at verse 8. Those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe. People living in distant lands see his signs and are awestruck. An example of this would be Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab had heard of God's mighty deeds in fleeing Israel from Egypt. So she says to Joshua's spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe. We see this today when our unbelieving secular leaders call for prayer in response to natural disasters. The greatness of God's creation and man's inability to control nature leaves us in awe. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, For his 
invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God's creation and signs bear witness to who he is. No one should complain that God has given enough evidence. No one should, shouldn't complain that God has given us enough evidence of his existence and character. The fault is with those who reject that evidence. So are you in awe of his signs? Or are you far off this morning? God invites all flesh to come to him. He can redeem. He hears prayer. He is the hope of the world. He is the God of salvation who has the power to establish a mountain. He can handle all that you bring to him. And at the end of verse 8, David says that God makes the morning and the evening shout for joy. If you've watched a sunrise or sunset recently, you've seen the sky go from dark to light or light to dark, full of colors and beauty. Well, creation is shouting for joy to God. So when you go outside in the morning with your cup of coffee and you see the sky brightening up, or when you get home in the evening and you see the colors in the sky, the reds, the oranges, the blues, remember that creation is shouting for joy to their creator. Join in with their praise. Praise is due to God because he is the God of grace, because he is the God of might, and lastly, because he is the God of provision. In verses 9 through 13, David speaks of how the Lord blesses the land. And these verses are beautifully poetic. One commentator, Derek Kidner, says this, Here we almost feel the splash of showers and the sense of the springing growth about us. It's beautifully poetic. David writes in verse 9, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. God visits his creation. He doesn't just create, but he tends to his creation. He waters the earth. The world would be a dry and barren land if God didn't water it. And it's important to understand that the society that David lived in relied heavily on water. If the rains came at the right time, that meant good crops, which meant enough food for the coming year and seeds for planting the next year's crops. But if the rains didn't come, it meant famine. It meant starvation. For people in that place and day, the coming of abundant rains to water the crops was literally the blessing of life rather than death. And David looks around and sees an abundance of water and praises God who provides it. He says, the river of God is full of water. This is probably in reference to the clouds in the sky that dropped rain from the heavens. And this water provides 
for the grain, for food. And in verse 10, we see that God blesses man's effort. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. The farmers would cultivate the fields. You'd have an ox pull a plow that would create furrows and ridges, and then a farmer would plant the seeds. And here David says that God waters the furrows and softens the ground in order for the seed to germinate and grow. It's not the farmer who makes the seeds grow. It's God. Martin Luther said this, the farmer does nothing more than break up the ground, plow, and sow, and then lets it lie. But God must be always attending to it with rain and heat and must do everything to make it grow and prosper while the farmer lies at home and sleeps. It's not the rain or the sun or good soil. It is God who makes the seeds grow in abundance. And as God visits the earth, a great harvest occurs. David writes, you crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The imagery here is of God himself going out into the fields and bringing the harvest into the barn again and again because the, the produce is literally falling off the wagon into the tracks that it has been made. And not only has the cultivated land produced abundantly, but the land that man left untouched is blessed with flowers and green growth, which is good for the feeding flocks. David says in verses 12 through 13, the pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain, they shout and sing together for joy. The earth joins in praising and singing to this great God. If this is nature's response to the blessing of God's bounty, how much more should his redeemed people praise him for the plenty that he has granted us? God is to be praised because he is the God of grace, the God of might, and the God of provision. And while this psalm may appear to just be a song of praise for an abundant harvest, the first four verses reshape the meaning of this psalm. There is an obvious spiritual analogy to the bountiful harvest that we see in verses 9 through 13. Just as God visited the earth in order to water and enrich it, Jesus visited his people on the earth in order to redeem them. Hosea Chapter 6, verse 3 says, He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And the river of God in other parts of Scripture represents the ministry of the Holy Spirit bringing spiritual blessing. And the Bible teaches that just as God provided the waters to make Israel's fields abound, the work of the Holy Spirit brings spiritual blessing and life to the believer. Through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit spreads the waters of salvation that seeps into sinners' hearts and starts softening the ground of their hard and barren hearts so that they spring to life and abound with the fruit 
of righteousness. While God uses rain to bring growth to the earth, he uses his word and spirit to cause people to be born again and grow in the knowledge of him. We must use the things that God gives us in order for growth in our own lives. His word, prayer, fellowship, baptism, the Lord's Supper, worship in the local church. And as we grow and and praise our God who is worthy of our praise, let's pray for an abundant harvest of salvation here in our city and in our church. There are many lost people just outside our church doors. Our church building is in a neighborhood. May we reach the people around us with the gospel, proclaiming the God of our salvation who is the only hope of the world. Let's do our part in tilling the land and then trust in God to bless it. If we will realize that a great harvest of eternal glory is taking place here and now through the spread of the gospel, then we will proclaim alongside David, praise is due to you, O God and to you shall vows be performed. In conclusion, as we focused in on these lyrics written by David about why God is due praise, let us worship him. Let us sing to him. Theology, which is the the proper study of God, should always lead to doxology, the proper worship of God learning about the truth of God, that he is the giver of all good things, should produce praise for God in the life of those who believe. He has forgiven our sins and freed us from the dominion of sin. He has chosen us and brought us near. He gives us satisfaction. He provides abundantly with every good thing and allows us to enjoy his harvest in peace and security because of his strength. We should offer joyful praise that acknowledges these realities. As we consider the grace and might and provision of our God, let's continue to pray that he would bring abundant growth in our lives, in our church, and in our evangelism. May we participate in all flesh coming to him, in people seeing that he is the God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. And that people who see his signs would not only be in awe, but would respond in faith and repentance. The fields are white for harvest. We must lift our prayers for revival, that God might send his spirit as the rains and make his church fruitful with new growth once again. God should be worshiped because of his salvation and provision. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and how it inclines our hearts to worship you. Help us to praise you as our redeemer, creator, and provider. In Jesus' name, amen.